Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimising human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by environmental physiologist and lecturer at Bournemouth University, Dr. Becky Neal. Environmental physiology is such a fascinating topic, and it's really interesting to see how the human body copes and competes in such extreme environments. Exercise in the heat is a common factor which really affects performance, and it's really affected the athletes that have gone over to the Tokyo Olympics, where it was reported to be incredibly hot and humid over there. In this episode, Becky and I discuss how the body physiologically reacts to heat, what can lead to a heat injury or illness, and what strategies you can use to acclimate to the heat and improve your own sporting performance. As always, please follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, or on your podcast app of choice. And while you're there, check out all of our other content. Here is Dr. Becky Neal. Hi, Becky. How are we? Hi, Phil. Yeah, very good. Thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on the progress theory. Um, With today's topic, obviously, we were going to talk about exercise in the heat. And I wanted just to like introduce this as to like where my interest in sort of environmental physiology has come from. It's definitely not my area, but it's it's an area that is fascinating. I think it's an area that's fascinating for a lot of people because it kind of represents the extremes. I have a book here, which I read quite a few years ago. It might be a little bit outdated i don't know if you've seen it before yes i have that one upstairs yeah yeah for those listening and not watching it's life at the extremes the science of survival by francis ashcroft who is a uh, professor of physiology at oxford yeah she goes she has like a chapter on high altitude high pressure extreme heat extreme cold or i think all of these are fascinating because people want to know how the body reacts in the extremes so i was like okay right let's talk about heat and i knew you did a lot of research within exercising in the heat so i was like okay right i'm gonna give you a shout and hopefully and thank you for coming on to the progress theory yeah my pleasure that book's great and like you say it's got all the different chapters for the different types of environmental stressor and i think you're interested in one then suddenly you're interested in all of them yeah definitely exactly that that's why hopefully i'll be able to have an episode on progress theory on like each chapter let's hear about you would you be able to give a bit more of an introduction about where your interest in environmental physiology came from yeah sure so at the moment I'm a senior lecturer at Bournemouth Uni uh, teaching physiology and and doing some research as well Um, but I I think I first academically encountered um, environmental physiology in probably my final year of university Um, you know I chose a chose an option uh, to do to do that 
um, mostly because I liked mountains <laughs> and I liked skiing and I liked, uh, I liked kind of doing things outdoors. You know, I'd been doing sport from when I was really young and I just liked, liked the outdoors and I liked extreme things. So I kind of chose one, one of those things because I liked physiology and it was like a combination of my favorite things, really. And, you know, you, you touched on those topics there. You know, we did altitude, we did heat, we did diving physiology, um, hyperbaric as well. And I really, really enjoyed that. And, you know, when, when you enjoy something, you want to do it more and more. And um, so I chose to do Definitely. a master's in, in something called human and applied physiology. And most of that was also environmental physiology. And we got to do some really cool trips and stuff. You know, we went to like the RAF and did like aviation medicine. So like proper high oh, altitude cool. physiology. Yeah. Um, other cold water immersion trips to Portsmouth um, near you. And some other heat stuff in the heat chambers and things. So really we did a lot of that. And I ended up doing my, my kind of research project in cold water immersion as well. And then I wanted to do even more. So, so I did a, a PhD um, and that was in heat acclimatization again at, um, at the labs in Portsmouth. So it just sort of got bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah. Is that under Professor Tipton? Yeah, he was my supervisor, along with Joe Corbett and Heather Massey. Okay, yeah. I, I remember Professor Tipton years ago came to St. Mary's and gave a, I think it was a talk on the dangers of open water swimming, but it wasn't necessarily always the shock of the cold. It was when people all get in and suddenly there's a lot of like splashing around and how it's like a combination of shock, right. cold and the fact that something like that, it was such a long time ago, but I remember it being really, yeah. really fascinating. So yeah, I think I, I think I've been involved in some of those experiments on autonomic conflict, but yeah, I, a bit like a triathlon starts a bit hectic, isn't it? And, and there's a lot of things mm. to, that could go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Would you be able to go into a bit more detail as to what happens to the body in the heat? So, yeah, physiologically, what goes on? Why do we, how do we respond? So some things happen quickly and some things happen a bit slower. So first of all, you know, you're going you're gonna to notice it perceptually. Your skin's going to get hot. Um, it's, on, it's on the surface. So your skin's going to get hot, but it's a, a bit longer before your core, your deep body gets, temperature gets hotter. So first of all, your skin's hot and you can feel that like perceptually. So you, you start feeling a bit hot. Um, then you have changes to like your heart rate, your, so your cardiovascular kind of um, responses. So your heart rate goes up in order to get more blood flow to your skin. So that way you can lose more heat if we have more blood, which essentially carries the heat around our body. If it's closer mm. to our skin surface, then we can lose it. We can lose more heat is, is one way that we cool down. So you get kind of more blood flow. So you might see your veins getting bigger, uh, vasodilation um, to help lose that heat. And then after that, you'll start sweating. So that happens a bit faster for men and they also sweat a bit more and it depends on your body size as well. So you'll start sweating and that's, that's the most important thing or that's the thing that's going to lose you the most heat probably, the evaporation of that sweat. So it's important that you sweat, you know, some people go into the heat mm. and they're like, oh, like I'm so unfair or I'm so, I'm so rubbish in the heat, I get so sweaty, like I hate this, let me just get rid of this sweat. But you, you want <laughs> to be sweaty and you want the sweat to evaporate so you can, you can lose the heat and maintain your body temperature or it's you know it's called thermoregulation you are thermoregulating um to help maintain like a a suitable body temperature or not let it kind of go out of control so mm. that's kind of like the main main responses there are you know more hormonal or hematological and, and lots of other kind of smaller changes that we don't notice so much and is it that as we exercise exercise actually accelerates the processes that you've just described it isn't like okay you respond to heat 
and then there's separate processes that that happen when you start exercising it's more that exercise accelerates it uh, and exacerbates it yeah exactly so you can you can gain heat from the environment when you're just passively there from warm air or from radiation from the sun um, but also you can generate heat you know your muscles when you're exercising we're not very efficient so some of it is you know useful work and the rest of it is heat that we that we need to lose. So exercising is going to make us hotter than not exercising. Uh, so active uh, rather than passive, and that yeah. means you're either going to get hotter faster, or you're going to need to kind of you're going to see this these sweating and things set on earlier. Yeah. So it kind of increases your core body temperature more so than just sitting uh, okay. in the heat. Is there a level of temperature or outside temperature where it's seen as like a bit of a danger zone? I mean, it's what, 26 degrees today? And that's probably not seen as a, as a danger zone, despite it being really hot for us Brits. But is there yeah. like a, a level of like, okay, you can, this is hot, but anything hot above this can be really quite dangerous? Yeah, well, it's, it's more of a balance. It's not that clear cut because there's so many th- factors that, that affect it, both environmental and, and your own physiology. So, you know, you could have a, a cool actual air temperature but it might be really sunny no wind you might be working really really hard and generating a lot of heat and you might be at risk of you know heat illness more so or you might be getting hotter than if it was you were just outside in the shade but the air temperature was 30 degrees so it's not really only air temperature there's lots of factors that that come into it solar radiation wind so convective cooling and what you're doing and also how good you are at thermoregulating people some people are going to be better at it than others which which factors which when you start combining them could be quite dangerous yeah so high solar radiation so like actual a lot of sun exposure low winds if you're if you're moving like if you're kind of moving through the air then there's then there's going to be some convective cooling you you know you can feel it can't you If, if you're in the heat and you don't have a fan on you feel hotter than if you just put a fan on your face that's Perceptually, it ha- it's working, but also it is actually helping to evaporate the sweat off of your off of your skin, especially if mm. um, there's high humidity, because that's one of the things we struggle with when there's high humidity. The problem is you can't evaporate the sweat that you've produced, so you don't actually lose the heat. You just get dehydrated. So that's why kind of hot and humid is kind of harder to deal with than hot and dry. Okay. What's, what's the difference between hot and humid? So if we're talking about the air temperature, we can have you know, a, a temperature in degrees C. So uh, like in Tokyo this, this year in the Summer Olympics, it's going to be maybe uh, mm. 30 degrees, but also the humidity might be about 70%. If the wow. humidity was lower, like 30%, it might be more, we might be able to deal with it better because we're much better or easier to to kind of evaporate the sweat that we're producing. Mm. I'm not sure okay. if that answered your question. <laughs> no, no, that, that makes sense. It's, you hear hot and you hear or heat and you hear humidity said a lot and you hear about certain places which are oh that's high humidity it's really quite dangerous to exercise there and Tokyo Olympics being one of them everyone's talked about about the high humidity there and could potentially be quite dangerous for the athletes if they don't prepare optimally so try and understand Mm -hmm. the, the difference between the two and how actually when you start combining them both together when they're both high that's the kind of danger danger zone I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the UK is actually quite humid, but we don't necessarily think that when you go outside. Um, you know, you yeah. think of humidity as like some tropical rainforest, but actually if you look at the look at the numbers and, and it's relative, it's relative to temperature, okay? So it's, it's not 
70% humidity at 30 degrees isn't the same as 70% humidity at 20 mm. degrees. So it is quite complicated. And this is why people try and practice in an environment that they think they're going to experience because it is different. Yeah. And it's these reasons why certain races, I guess, like the Marathon de Sables, running across the Sahara Desert, and maybe the, the Badwater, that long ultra marathon, which is in Death Valley. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, yeah these conditions where heat and humidity are the highest and that's what makes them particularly tough races? Well, the desert's pretty dry, so I think that's why people are actually able to do five days across the Sahara because it's okay. not so humid and they've, they've got some preparation in place, they've got cooling strategies in place and there's going to be a lot of solar radiation there, so they're going to get that that kind of heat influence, but the humidity isn't so high, and so they are able to kind of lose the heat through their thermoregulation as long as they're able to kind of maintain control of that. Okay. I, know, I never really knew that. And I guess the bad water might be a little bit different. I've heard that is really, like, real high humidity there, or I think. Yeah. I should double check the climate of, of Death Valley. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're going to go race somewhere hot, check check the climate. <laughs> That's the message. Yeah, yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have a, a big influence. And also, if you're going to go somewhere, you want to prepare for the worst case scenario, really. Mm. Tokyo might be 30, 31, but also on one day it might be 34. And that's yeah. the minimum that you, if, you, if you're able to heat, acclimatise beforehand. That's like sort of the minimum okay. you want to be aiming for. Yeah. And same with humidity. It's quite a nice segue into what I was thinking of asking next would be like, how would you prepare the body to do such an event like Tokyo Olympics, like the Badwater, like the Marathon de Sable, when you've got to improve your body's ability to thermoregulate, what kind of strategies could someone use? Well, there's a few different approaches, mainly influenced by what you have access to. So, you know, the, the kind of the ideal scenario would be that you could do some kind of heat acclimatization or heat acclimation. We call it heat acclimation when it's done in, in the laboratory acclimatization mm. when it's done in the real world. So that would okay. be ideal because what you're doing there is actually changing your body. So you're better able to handle it. You can thermoregulate better to lose more heat or store less heat. Other options involve external things or, or even internal things, but they're not. you're not having a change in your physiology. You're just putting something on you. So for example, cooling strategies like ice vests. That's, you know, if you put an ice jacket on, you're going to be able to drag some heat out of your body. The ice is going to cool you down by like conduction mm. and you're going to get cooler. That's kind of, You're kind of forcing it on your body. You're not actually kind of regulating your body temperature. And also there's like there's other things about that that aren't really ideal. You might feel a bit sluggish because you're basically making your skin cold. And when your skin's cold, it does the opposite to what when, when you're hot. So you're actually constricting yeah. your blood vessels and then your body thinks you're cold and, and it does the thing to kind of retain more heat. Like some of the responses, you're just stopping the blood flow going to your skin. Well, actually, you want to mm. keep losing heat, but, you know, the, the local mechanisms think you're actually cold. So you yeah. can kind of get a bit sluggish or if you're actually wearing an ice jacket, for example, then you're covering up your skin so you can't evaporate sweat from, from those areas either. So it might seem nice and feel nice, but actually might not be as good as actually kind of thermoregulating differently. Another option would be to do that, but internally. So ice slurries or very cool drinks. That way you can kind of cool down from the inside out a bit, but you're still, it's still kind of being forced upon you. So that's, that's that good sounds because nicer. you can maintain hydration. Yeah. <laughs> and you can have a nice yeah, drink. The slurries sound nicer than the vest. Definitely, yeah. 
Yeah, so the vests are good if you're if you're not an athlete, if you're in a different situation. Maybe you have to wear protective clothing. People who have to go defuse bombs or fight fires or work in kind of suits because of some kind of infection control or something like that. Those people might actually benefit from from wearing an ice jacket because they can't evaporate their sweat anyway because they're in this totally encapsulated mm. environment. So there is definitely um, ways where it can be useful. But I think if you're an athlete, there may be an internal um, mechanism like an ice slurry because then you can add in some electrolytes, some carbohydrates, and you can kind of make sure you're hydrated as well because that's going to um, impair your ability to handle the heat as well if you're dehydrated. There's okay. quite a few other mechanisms as well, like different tools yeah, you can use. Certainly. Yeah, Convective cooling, fanning is very good, especially mm. if you're sweaty wet yeah just have someone run alongside you with a fan yeah that, so yeah. if you're running there you know or if you're cycling you've already got quite a lot of convective cooling if you're cycling at 40 kilometers an hour you've already got that much kind of wind so you're mm. adding a bit more fan isn't really going to do much but if you've kind of you want to make sure that you you're sweating enough to be able to evaporate that and the sweat consistency is different between people and changes actually with heat acclimatization as well and that mm. sweat consistency actually helps evaporate the the sweat quicker better than better than just water on your skin sounds like there's definitely quite a few strategies you can use some may be more logistically challenging than others and some might be more appropriate for certain events like bike versus running or something like that so it's quite nice to have like an overview of all of them and then you sort of pick and choose what you think's best for what's going to come at you in the yeah, event <laughs> exactly and there might be events where you need to have lots of smaller events if you're in like the heptathlon or and some kind of multi-cycling event or something, um, you might need to kind of be out for a long time, but then getting hot and cold and and doing things in between. Sometimes even just perceptually, you can we can we can change El Menthol actually makes us feel cooler, okay. and you can have other kind of I've local cooling mechanisms. But it's I wouldn't necessarily say that's the way forward because then you think that you're cooler, but you're actually not. So you're more likely to get hotter because you'll continue working hard, uh, especially yeah, in a competitive yeah. environment. That's The competition element is actually going to have even more influence. And you're probably, if you're a competitive athlete, you're going to override that feeling of, you know, you're hot, but actually I want to beat that person just five meters in front of me. So I'm going to keep working hard. And mm. we've seen that kind of come to a head in a few races before, including triathlons. So yeah, it's quite, it can be dangerous in a, yeah, in a competition definitely. scenario. But yeah, the best way forward is heat acclimation. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, actually with that, because... Say I'm an Olympic athlete, obviously I wish, but and I'm going to somewhere that's very humid like Tokyo. So you talk about acclimatization versus acclimation. Would you recommend that I do both? Like I should be maybe working for a few weeks in a heat chamber before I then go to Tokyo and I should go two to three weeks beforehand so I can then get used to the heat that's there. Is that the best strategy? Because I've, I've, I've seen... Sort of some companies, they've got a heat chamber and they go, oh, come for a heat chamber. And they, the athlete goes once. But in my head is thinking, we probably need a bit more bit more time in the heat chamber than just one session to actually allow your body to adapt to that. Yeah. Okay, so there's, there's quite a few like, sort of nuances to heat acclimation. But yeah, it's definitely okay. ideal. And you want to be doing it for more than one day. Really in the literature, the optimum amount of time to do it for is sort of 10 days, two weeks. By that okay. point, you're going to have adapted all of your different responses. Some things happen really quickly, like your cardiovascular changes quite quickly. So you're going to have a lower heart rate for the same amount of work. Mm. So you do the same exercise, your heart rate will be lower. And that's a good thing. Then other changes happen. You get an increase in skin blood flow. You get an increase in sweating, but that's a bit slower. That 
that's closer to the two-week mark. You can't get that kind of change in a few days, really. It takes a bit longer. I did some studies in my PhD comparing five days with 10 days heat acclimation to see what, what difference there was between the, the responses. And the other thing that you want mainly from heat acclimatization is an expansion in plasma volume. That means you've got more blood, essentially, or more water in your blood as well, which means you have a higher cardiac output and you can actually kind of have a bit more capacity to do more work or, or handle or exercise unless you're doing um, a bit better. And that will improve your performance. So heat acclimation does, does improve VO2 max lactate threshold and a lot of other kind of smaller things and different fuel sourcing even. So there are many, many different adaptations that happen. Heat shock proteins increase and you've got these changes to your blood as well. So mm. really there's a lot of benefits to it. But if you want to do it properly, you need, to, you need a bit of time and you need those environments as well. You know, everyone wants to know how you can do it quicker. So there has been quite a lot of research hmm. in that for athletes, but also for people who have to be deployed somewhere hot very quickly. They don't necessarily have a lot of time. So people looked hmm. at five days, people look at twice daily. Is that as good? If you do two lots of two per day, so two days, twice a day, is that better than once a day for four days? So people have looked at yeah. that. And it does work a bit. Some of these changes happen and it's definitely better than not doing it. And actually a lot of these changes, they don't last forever, but they, they last a little bit of time. So you can do it kind of before, but the, the complicated thing with athletes is that they've got to travel. They've got to get in their taper. They've got to do their, their good training sessions and they've got to mm. eat and change time zone and get enough sleep. And there's so many other things to, to take into consideration. But at the end of the day, if, if you're out there and it's hot, and you haven't prepared for it, it's going to affect your performance. Why would you neglect that? You wouldn't neglect what food you're eating. And it, it yeah. always kind of baffles me sometimes. People don't seem to think about it year round. And then suddenly there's a big championship race and it's, oh, it's, it's whoa, <laughs> why is everyone surprised? You could have been thinking about this all year round. And I'm sure that a lot of athletes are. Um, I've seen athletes come to the lab all year round and, and kind of try and prevent things from happening but a lot of the general public at least probably only think about it when suddenly it's hot you know the last few days have been hot and we've only really started thinking mm. about it at the moment other countries a bit yeah. better australia they're much used to kind of heat waves and they have a lot of research looking at kind of the population especially older people who aren't able to regulate in the heat as well and that can cause quite a lot of issues so Anyway, I've gone on a tangent. <laughs> Heat no, that's perfect. Yeah, it will last for, for a little bit. Timing yeah. with all the other things has to be considered. Yeah. Some things will, we will lose quite quickly that the sweat response is going gonna, is gonna to be lost kind of within a week, but other things might stay for a month. And it's a lot faster than things okay. like altitude training. Altitude takes a bit longer, but lasts a bit longer as well. Okay. Do you think heat is sometimes underestimated? The only reason I said that is because I've seen a number of big events and all of a sudden people, certain athletes don't do as well. And then they start saying, oh, maybe we didn't prepare for the heat, that we didn't expect the environment to be the way it is on the day. And then you've got a few like scientists on Twitter saying, oh, maybe they just didn't plan ahead enough. What you've just described, there's so many different factors which you can use or manipulate with the training to try and get a response. And you could probably do it within five days, 10 days, double sessions, whatever it might be. But the fact that we, as some athletes still seem to be getting it wrong, is there a lack of understanding of how to put it all together in, a, in an applied sense? Or is it just being underestimated? I think it is often underestimated, but, but also people are trying to do it. They are putting in some effort and maybe there is some lack of understanding, but also it's just, it's just logistically difficult. It's, it's difficult to prepare optimally 
uh, especially in mm. the exact conditions that you're going to be mm. racing in. You're, you're never working that hard. You've never got the competitive influence and you don't know exactly what the conditions are going to be on that day. Is it going to be hot but cloudy? Because that's a totally different kettle of fish if you've got no solar radiation. Is it going to be slightly cooler but actually really sunny? And how long am I going to be out for it? And you can't blame blame them. But there's definitely things um, that can be done. And, and even if you don't have access to those types of things, there are other you know, ways. So we've been talking about active heat acclimation. So when people do these heat acclimatization sessions, they may be training 90 minutes in something hot, 40 degrees, 50% humidity in a heat chamber, nice and controlled. What we, we use generally in the research at the moment and what is kind of a good way to go is something called isothermal strain or other people call it controlled hypothermia. And that basically means when you're exercising, you're measuring your core body temperature, usually with a rectal thermistor, and you're trying to kind of get to a similar temperature. So you're, you're not measuring the amount of heat coming at you, 40 degrees from the air. Instead, you're measuring how your body is, is the strain on your body. So normally your core temperature might be 37 degrees. And we're, when we do these heat acclimation sessions, we're more like 38.5. doesn't sound like that much, but when you're 38.5, generally you're hot, you're sweaty, you're pink, and you, mm-hmm. you can definitely feel it. It's enough. Your skin's hot and your core body temperature is hot, and that's going to stimulate these adaptations. So what we do is we try and get there quite quickly. So we work hard for you know, about half an hour. And then once we're there, we just try and kind of level off and stay at that temperature. And you don't actually need to do as much exercise then. We, we have a heat chamber, it's 40 degrees. You don't have much wind in there. You know, have a little bit of a fan to make them feel more comfortable but you're not actually kind of cooling them down. So you just kind of regulate the exercise to maintain that core body temperature to kind of cre- keep that stimulus going. Because as people mm-hmm. adapt, after five days, they're actually going to have a cooler skin temperature and they're actually going to be handling that a bit better. So they're going to have to work a bit harder. So instead of, you can change the environment, you can put the temperature up a bit or you can get people to exercise more. But if, if you weren't measuring core temperature, then you wouldn't necessarily know that. If you just kept everything the same, the stimulus would be getting weaker and you wouldn't be kind of maximizing your adaptation. So mm. that was an aside about, about how you do a heat acclimation. But if you can't do all that, if you don't have all those, you know, nice things to monitor and, and create <laughs> the heat, then maybe you can do passive heat acclimation. And you can do that with hot water or you could do it like a hot bath or you could do it um, with a sauna, so hot air. And the best way to really to do this is, is after exercise. Because if you're sat in a hot bath or you're sat in a hot sauna, your skin's going to feel hot quite quickly, but it takes a bit longer for your core temperature to be hot. It's not going to be like when you're exercising, like you said at the start, when you're exercising, mm. you're generating a lot of heat, so you get hotter kind of quicker. So if you're just sat in a bath or sat in a sauna, it's not going to be as kind of strong a stimulus as active kind of heat acclimation, but it is going to give you something. And that's something that's probably a bit more accessible. But it's also quite nasty. Mm. <laughs> like imagine finishing a hard session, you feel really hot, you've gone for a run, and then you get in a 40 degree bath for 40 minutes. Like that's hard enough <laughs> to handle on just a normal day. When that you sounds awful. Bath. Yeah, so it's not that pleasurable. Um, but, it's, but it's one way to kind of, to get something. You will get some adaptation yeah. from that. It won't be as much as active heat acclimation, but it's going to be useful. But then again, that's not really you're not really experiencing what you're going to experience in the competition. You're not used to exercising in the heat. So you're still going to have an answer to your question. You're still going to have that kind of surprise or expectations not really there. You're going to be kind of shocked still and think, oh, my performance and things go out the window a bit. So you can be prepared, but also not prepared in the in the best way. Yeah. I mean, it, is, yeah. it definitely sounds like each of the 
approaches have certain limitations, but doing them still outweighs the fact of not doing any heat training before going to do uh, a very hot race. Yeah, definitely. It's, you're definitely going to be prepared more so. As long as you're not thinking beyond your meat, you don't, you know, a lot of it's placebo as well, but but not so much mm. in heat acclimation because because it actually will have a direct effect on you. And also you don't want to yeah. be kind of overdoing it and thinking you're fine when actually you're not. That's when you end up kind of weaving around the, the finish line. That's kind of what I wanted to touch on next because there was this fame, well, I think it's famous, but I've seen it lots of times. I think it's yeah, I mean, the, the Ironman in Kona, Hawaii, where there was like a, a sprint finish at the end of it between two people and they literally couldn't walk uh, and they're sort of like crawling over each other to get to the finish line. And I heard both of them got like very serious heat injuries to the point where one had to have part of their colon removed, something like that, something really bad. I'll have to find it and put it in the show notes. But I, I wanted to touch on like, what is a heat injury? If this person had part of their, part of their insides removed technically, what, what, how does the body get damaged if it's exposed to heat or a situation which it's not accustomed to and it just takes it that little bit too far yeah i mean it is dangerous like you say those videos there are actually quite a few different ones i don't know if i've seen Mm. that one but there are there are lots and that's that's the problem and we've seen people in mass participation events also succumb to kind of issues like that so heat illness can have different levels of severity. First, you might just have a bit of a headache. You might be dehydrated and we class that as a 2% body mass loss. That's when we class you as dehydrated and that's going to affect your performance. Okay. And, and that's not really like a heat illness per se, but you might be feeling it and, and it might affect your performance. After that, we have things like heat exhaustion. Uh, and that's when you kind of, you can't any longer keep up with regulating your, your temperature. So it's kind of spiraling out of control. You're getting hotter and hotter. You're, you're sweating, your skin blood flow, your heart rate, all those things are not doing enough to maintain a kind of a constant body temperature. So you're getting hotter and hotter and eventually you'll get to a point where, where you collapse and that's when it can get a bit more dangerous and, and, and lead to death in the end. Certainly the difference between some of the things is whether or not someone's hot and sweaty or if they're dry. If they're, if they're dry, they're no longer kind of sweating, which is a bad thing. They're not able to even do that mechanism to help cool them down and that's that's a real real problem with anybody that is kind of experienced a heat illness you need to to get them cool that's like the main aim you need to cool them down quickly and some of these people that we've seen at the end of of events that have signs of heat illness they're not necessarily hot you know people can be 38 and a half degrees and have heat illness or they can be 41 degrees and core temperature and have heat illness somebody might be 40 degrees and be fine so it's not just about what their core temperature is it's it's all all these other things and so you need to kind of look look at what they're looking like are they if they're pink and sweaty they're probably still doing something to to cool them down but if they're kind of white and dry and it's probably a bit, it's gone too far and you need to kind of intervene for them because they're not really able to do much themselves and you get quite mm. delirious people don't talk much sense um they can't go in a straight line and then that can lead to damage in all parts of your body really and and some of the things we haven't really talked about about the smaller parts of heat acclimation we have something called uh thermal tolerance which is mainly based around the cells of the body so you're basically when you're doing heat acclimation or heat exposure of some kind, the cells are getting used to it as well. And and their adaptation or response to it may last longer than some of these whole body responses that we've been talking about. 
So we've done some kind of measuring. We collect some blood samples and we measure some hormones in the blood, cortisol, different cytokines, inflammatory markers, heat shock proteins, mm. other kind of fluid regulatory hormones like ADH. We're trying to like work out whether some of those things can be protective in the future. So that like so thermal tolerance of the cells. If they've had some exposure to some heat, will they be better at handling that in the future and actually stop some of these more severe heat illness kind of you know, situations? So, yeah, you, whenever you think of those physiological responses you want to get from an athlete, especially through training, I guess you do automatically go to those total body responses, but it's yeah. those on a cell slash I don't know, molecular level, which are the ones that are supporting the whole body responses. And if they change or are more adaptive before you see anything whole body wise then yeah you can imagine yeah, that's the more important thing to maybe focus on maybe a little bit more difficult to focus on maybe a bit more lab-based but still very important yeah so you can't really you can't really know and we you know we're trying to work out ways to see if we can see whether somebody is is he acclimated enough through all of those measurements cellular or, or, or whole body but you know that's kind of when sometimes people end up getting heat, heat illness when you don't expect them to, but then you find out later on, or actually they were a bit ill beforehand. So, you know, there, there was other things going on at a cellular viral infection or something like that. People with, you know, fever is a symptom of, of infection. So you might already have an increase in body temperature. And sometimes it's not even, even about something being wrong with you. But for women, our core body temperature isn't the same all times of the month. You know, in the luteal phase, our core body temperature is actually high already. And people who are on oral contraceptive as well are going to have a higher body temperature. And so we might be more susceptible to, to some injury and we don't sweat as much. We have quite a high skin blood flow. It's why we go pink rather than being as sweaty. But we don't also have as much muscle to generate as much heat. And, you know, there's so many factors in physiology, a surface area of your body to lose heat from how much kind of is exposed, how well-trained you are. So people who are endurance-trained are already kind of partially acclimated. Some of those things I mentioned at the start about how you adapt to the heat are actually very similar to how you, you adapt to just endurance training. So if you've already got some of those, then you're probably pretty good at handling it already. People seem pretty veiny, don't they, at the endurance training? Yeah. So there's, again, a lot of integrating factors. Yeah, certainly. When it comes to the difference between men and women, because of those limitations you just described, do f women respond better to heat acclimation training? Or would you say men respond better to it? Like they probably both get to the same level. They just, one might be respond better to the training initially than the other. It's difficult to know. There's not really enough research. And Jessica Mee has done some papers on yeah. this. Um, pretty sure it's it's slower for women to adapt. The reason doesn't we don't really know is just because it's researchers have avoided it because if you're yeah. doing a heat acclimation study that takes a week and we want to know has core body temperature changed you want to start with a nice baseline you want to have a nice consistent baseline and that's easy in men but in women it's, it doesn't stay the same it's changing so it's hard to kind of determine the differences but it should be done and 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 Jessica's had a good go at it and it's it's slower actually it's harder but but okay. it's, we can still heat acclimate, yeah. So the research is in this area is starting to come out, it's starting to be investigated and we should know a bit yeah, more. Yeah, I think it's still quite so. slow and maybe I should do something. Yeah, we definitely need to know more because all of the papers, all the things we're taking the information from is healthy, young men, probably not actual elite athletes, but just well-trained men. The recreational. kilograms-ish, yeah. 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 University students, that's obviously a big, <laughs> a big well, uh, we try and, population I, for I studies. Know in, I know in my research, I tried to 
find the most well-trained, but they definitely were still men, so it's tricky. After everything we've just spoken to, being a racer yourself and a very good runner, would you do the marathon de sablers or would you do the badwater? Would they be something you still want to do yourself? Oh, yeah, I definitely would like to. And there's other researchers in, in heat acclimation that have done it, Jodie. Oh, okay. I mean, she's, she's done it, that's good. I think sometimes I, I'm, I've i gone past that naive state. So, you know, when I'm running a race, I'm either thinking about the physiology or how hot or cool I am, even when we go into mm. our, our cold water dips in part of our races as well. I'm thinking about cold water shock and how, how cold I'm getting. But it is, it is useful. We see people these days in, in marathon events and things wearing hats with phase change material and people probably don't notice, but they've got like basically ice in their hats to help cool them down and they're changing them during the race to help keep them cool. So there's things that if you know how to deal with heat or how to kind of use things, then you can actually kind of probably improve your performance. So having the knowledge yeah. is, is definitely useful and avoiding heat illness is always good. But yeah, I think I definitely do want to do some more extreme events. Yeah. Push yourself that little bit further. The extreme yeah. ones are the ones that just, they just look horrible. <laughs> There's something about long distance in but the heat. It seems like it's just so you can say you've done them. No, you Check out Phil, he's done this, 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 and this. And was, but, <laughs> but something about, something about the, the long distance marathon de Sable just looks, is that just attainable for me? It does. Yeah. And I've done, I've done like some work acclimating people before they go there so they come to the heat chamber and do some sessions with us yeah. before they go and they come back with all the photos and i'm like oh one day uh-huh. i haven't taken any steps to, to doing it so when when i want to make it happen i will i will but the uh bad the bad water may be even worse than the way yeah anyway, well, i quite fancy an adventure just, race well Haley and i were supposed to do the adventure race in in scotland obviously not oh, a, yeah. a very very hot race but that unfortunately it was cancelled because of covid mm. i was just gonna say you know following the news from um out in china it last oh, yeah. sadly a lot of people um, got caught in bad weather so it doesn't have to be heat to be to make it extreme you know we've got altitude of course but also just cold rain weather can have a profound effect yeah yeah see this is why environmental fizz is so fascinating yeah. I mean, we've just spent 40 minutes discussing one factor which can be really quite dangerous and you need to take into account. But there's like a million other ones you've got to take into account yeah. as well. Don't get me started on diving or, or space. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the progress theory. We always ask our guests this one question, and that is, if you could choose a guest to be on the show, uh, who would you choose? And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the environmental fizz field. It could be anyone. But yeah, who would you want to listen to? Oh, that's really tough. I think I'd like to hear somebody like Chrissy Wellington, someone mm-hmm. who's achieved some really impressive performances, especially a female, and just seems very, very determined. It's quite interesting to hear the mindset of athletes like that. Yeah, and mindset must be such a big thing when it comes to events in the heat, because mm-hmm. that must be a variable well, that must yeah. be really like pressuring you to stop. Yeah, well, my colleagues did a, a paper looking at the effect of competition on the behaviour and thermoregulation, and it and it totally overrides everything physiology. So it's pretty pretty dangerous. It's quite oh, a cool wow. study. They had a like an avatar that you were racing, but you didn't you thought it was somebody else, but it was actually your past performance to see how that would affect oh, okay. people. Oh, that's wicked! You know, I'll check that out. Um, yeah, Corbett. Wow, Corbett et al. Well, I'll check it out. Maybe put that in the show notes yeah. as well. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much, Becky. You're welcome. And hopefully we'll see you at 
probably a Spartan or a Tough Mudder in the future. Thank you to Becky for coming onto the progress theory and talking about her ideas and research on how the heat affects us during exercise and what training we can do to improve our own thermoregulation. I think we've all seen videos where the heat has greatly affected athletes to the point of injury and you see them reduced to a crawl. So it was great to get insight to all of the factors which can influence how heat and humidity affects us during exercise. As always, I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on key areas which really stood out to me from the episode. Firstly, it was amazing to see just how many different factors influence the effect of heat, particularly how the heat influences different sports in different ways. In cycling, the wind resistance will directly help your body cool, whereas during running, this is greatly reduced. We need to understand all of the factors which will affect athletes during their sport and then understand how the environmental conditions such as heat may influence the specifics of the sport. Secondly, I thought it was interesting that the effect of many cooling strategies can influence the body in negative ways if used inappropriately. For example, an ice vest will be great to cool the body during a run, but also covering the body in this way will hamper the skin's ability to evaporate sweat. There must be an appropriate length of time to use an ice vest before it becomes counterproductive. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode and allowed you to reflect on your next race or challenge. What environmental factors will you face? Will heat be one of them? If so, I hope this episode provided you with plenty of information to help develop your own acclimatization strategy. If you enjoyed the show, it would be awesome if you could leave us a review and share this episode on your Insta story. Feed that algorithm to help grow the show. We'll see you in the next one. Thank you.